turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read the first six verses this morning together. The, uh, the wonderful passage from the Old Testament that Mark read for you this morning, I meant to address with you this morning, but I might make him read it again next week because we'll probably address it next week instead. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we want to focus on what is God doing uh, in the midst of his people in this generation. Um, look with me, if you will, in verse 1. We'll start there. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, Paul says? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon the reading, the preaching of your word. We pray that you would make us all sufficient uh, to live up to the calling which we've received. We pray that we would know the gospel more clearly, that we would live it out uh, as well to uh, a watching world. Lord, we we ask for, for grace to imbibe this word, to believe it, to hold on to its promises. We pray in Christ's name. As most of you know, to get a job, and just about any job in the United States today, you, you pretty much have to go through the same process as anyone else. After you've you know, listed your credentials, you put together a resume, there's always one last thing that most employers look for. They want that letter of recommendation. They want someone that they can talk to that can vouch that you are, in fact, a good person and that you are a good worker. But what happens if you're not a good person? Not a good worker. What happens if you had a bad relationship with your previous employer? What then do you say? Who do you give in that return? In that in that regard, how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Well, it's uh, I, I went through one bad church experience in my life, and I know what it's like to not be able to give that previous reference, and you, it, it makes it difficult. But I I, I was reading yesterday that about seventeen percent survey was put out recently. Seventeen percent of current employees in the workforce today have made gross exaggerations on their resumes and have even provided fake references on their job application. Fake references. Now, you might think that I'm, I'm kidding, but apparently, uh, I looked this up yesterday. There are a number of websites you can find, just type them in, that will not only provide fake businesses that you supposedly worked at, but will also provide fake websites. And even the, the names of fake managers who actually field phone calls on your behalf to say how good a worker you really are. And to be prepared in case anyone calls, they have that number and they will pretend to be your previous employer. Go look it up. You think I'm kidding. It's very common now. And it's a, sort of a shameless promotion online. So don't get any ideas for your next job. But nevertheless, it is something that unprincipled people do to get their foot in the door. Well, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is, is dealing with a similar type of person, very unprincipled men, 
that have come to the Corinth from the church in Jerusalem, seemingly providing very stellar references. Now, we don't know if these references are legit or not, or uh, who's actually giving these references if they are, uh, but for one reason or another, they have a piece of paper that says they ought to be trusted, they ought to be listened to, and as a result, the church in Corinth is buying into it. They believe these men and have given them some authority in the life of the church. Now, these men... Uh, were not present when the Apostle Paul first planted the church. So you can see why it could be a, a potential problem when Paul is, is desirous of coming back. But these men show up at some while he's away, and they begin to preach a different gospel, one that's really primarily based upon works rather than upon grace. Again, we're not told exactly what they're teaching, but if you read closely each of the chapters in this epistle, you'll find that they have very uh, Judaizing tendencies. In other words, their main thing is they want the Gentiles to conform more to Judaism so that a Gentile who's come to faith in Christ needs to be circumcised and needs to follow some of the ceremonial laws and prove, know that I am or that I'm not. And I'm thinking, well, how can you not know that if you're resting in Christ alone? You see, if you're resting in your own works, you're resting in your own abilities to keep something, then yeah, you shouldn't be certain at all. On any given week, we all look bad, right? But if you're resting in Christ alone, in his perfect works, then you ought to know that you have salvation because you're trusting in someone else's works that are perfect. You're also trusting that someone else has already paid for all of your sins. What does it take to get into heaven? Well, you have to be perfect. No big deal. But if you're trusting in someone who is perfect and you're resting in him alone for salvation, then you ought to know you have assurance of salvation. You see how that works? But if in any way you're trying to instead rest in something that you've done, well, then that throws a kink in the whole plan. It, it messes up the whole gospel. And that's what these men are doing. They've taken the focus off of Christ and put it back upon ourselves. And the minute that you do that, it leaves you with these lingering doubts. Well, I don't know that I'm saved because now it's focused upon me again, rather than upon the perfection of Christ. So in order to gain more authority in the church, these men have not only questioned Paul's gospel, but they've questioned Paul's credentials to even preach that gospel. And they're basically pointing out that, well, you weren't one of the original disciples. There are 12 disciples. You're not one of them. How can we vouch for you? You don't carry the same weight of authority. You don't have this letter of recommendation that we have from supposedly from the 12 in Jerusalem. Of course, Paul had had a dramatic conversion story on his road to Damascus, and he had shared that testimony many times, but who else could vouch for that? Who else saw the resurrected Christ that he had seen? No one. So how would he prove that? Then he said, well, I could spend more time proving all the things that I've done, all the sacrifices that I've made, but he doesn't come in any way proving his credentials. It doesn't feel that he needs to. This would, of course, put Paul in the place of having to defend himself anyway, which is sort of a catch-22. They're wanting to put him in this situation because if he begins to defend his ministry, then they'll accuse him of self-promotion. So he can't win, you see. If he begins to defend himself, he loses that argument. If he doesn't defend himself, then he loses that aspect of the argument. But if you, if you look back at verse 1 with me in the text, you can see now why Paul asked this short series of rhetorical questions. He says, first, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, are we promoting ourselves as we've been accused of again? Of course, the answer is no. 
Uh, we are not promoting ourselves. Now, if you ask, why does he say us rather than I? Because if you remember when he writes the letter in the very beginning, the greeting is from Paul and his co-laborer, Timothy. Together, he's saying, we are not promoting ourselves. We're not commending ourselves again. Uh, but then he asks another question. He says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? Again, the expected answer is no, because all the Corinthians knew him already. He's the planner of the church. Obviously, he's got the credentials that are needed. He's a well-known commodity. You know, when uh, I do the teaching uh, at the seminaries in Columbia and elsewhere, um, most of the time when I first go to a new seminary, they don't know who I am. They don't know me from Adam, right? And so when I'm about to land at the airport, I'm expecting that someone will be there to pick me up. It's always a little, you know, uncertain. Are they going to be there? Are they not going to be there? Uh, will I find them? Will I not find them? You know, and, and you think, well, how will they recognize me? It's very difficult to find me in a crowd. And so, and they always ask me, well, uh, what do you look like? And I, I just said, just look for the tallest gringo in the room. You'll find me. And, and, and ultimately they do. They always come up to me. I never have to go looking for them because they, they, they have a sense of what I am. But the Apostle Paul was well known. He wasn't a stranger to them. They not only, know, they not only knew what he looked like, but they knew his conduct, his faith, his teaching, his works. They knew so much about him. He didn't need to give another reference for them to know him. They already knew him. Notice too, though, in verse 1, that his antagonists were not only promoting letters of recommendation that they had received from somewhere else, but they're also seeming, des they're, they're desirous of getting letters of recommendation from Corinth. Did you notice that in verse 1? They're, they're looking for recommendations from Corinth as well. Why? Because they want to go to the surrounding towns, to Laodicea, to Athens, and the other places that are nearby, to then say, Corinth is now also recommending us and our ministry and our gospel so they can gain even more power and authority. So they want to use the Corinthian church in a way to name drop, if you will. You know, on this last uh, trip to Columbia, I was teaching at two different seminaries. And um, one is in Bogota, which is high up in the Andes Mountains, about 10,000 feet above sea level. And the other one is in Cartagena, which is right on the, on the, on the coast of the Pacific Ocean. So very different. And, and, and they're about, uh, I want to say it's about a 20-hour drive by car if you were to drive between these two places. But it was interesting. I go to both of these places, and within an hour of being in each uh, seminary, I have a man who comes up to me and asks me if I know the same guy named Don. And I'm thinking, I live in a very big country in the United States. Why would I know Don, you know, in that sense? Uh, there are millions and millions of people who live here. But, uh, but they understand that I'm a Presbyterian pastor. One of the seminaries I go to is a Baptist one. Another one's more Presbyterian in nature. And they both recognize that I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And they also recognize that I live in the state of Michigan. And this guy named Don also lives in the state of Michigan. And so, again, I said, well, the state of Michigan's quite large, too. And uh, I said, depending upon that, but not only that, um, they're the only, in both cities, there's only one Presbyterian church out of millions and millions of people. I was explaining to them, in our state alone, we probably have four or five different Presbyterian denominations. I said, just because he's in the same state doesn't mean that I would possibly know him. And he's not. He's in the EPC, which is Evangelical Presbyterian Church, instead of uh, the PCA. But a very like-minded um, uh, denomination. 
But then it was interesting that they told me his last name and it was beginning to ring a bell again. It's like Don, Don Gallardi. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've heard that name before. And I remember talking to one of my assistant pastors. I was talking to Mark about Don Gallardi because I knew that he knew him. And so I brought up the fact that Mark knows Don Gallardi. And so I come home and uh, at the, I think it was at the Monday, Thursday service, I talked to Mark. And I said, Mark, you know Don Gallardi, right? Because they keep asking me if I know Don. And he said, yes, I know Don very well. Don introduced me to my wife. And I thought, well, that's pretty fascinating. And the fact that they're very good friends and he sees them all the time. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Well, now, what I'm not telling you is that I also had written a dissertation about four years ago on preventive discipline. I know it's exciting stuff. And in that dissertation, I quoted a guy named Don who had written a book on corrective discipline. And it was the same guy, Don Gallardi. And what I also am not telling you is that for the last two years, I have gone to two different sites. And each time I go to these sites, Don Gallardi was there a month before me or a month after me. And so I'm thinking, this is getting a little freaky now, you know, in that sense, that we have way too many intersections going on here. So long story short, I'm having lunch with Don Gallardi this Tuesday. So that I can figure out who this guy is that has the same mindset as me and happens to be in all the same places in the world as me, but yet lives 40 miles down the street from my house. I have to meet Don Gallardi because we're, we're co-laborers in the, in the Lord. We don't even know it, you know, in that sense. But in this case, something similar is happening, but instead, these men are not in the same place as Paul at the same time, and they're not working together. They're working at odds against each other. I'm very glad to know that Don and I are not working at odds uh, with each other. But in this case, they were. And so if you remember Paul's past, he was uh, very fond of getting letters of recommendation when he needed them. If you remember Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was called Saul, right? And he goes to the city of Damascus, and he goes to Damascus with letters of recommendation from the high priest himself in Jerusalem to say, I have the right and authority to drag off Jews who have converted to faith in Christ and to put them in chains and bring them back to Jerusalem. So clearly he's not averse to letters of recommendation. And even as a Christian, as a leader in the church of Christ itself, Paul is known for writing letters of recommendation to other people. We know that in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, very famous Phoebe, remember the name Phoebe? She is given a recommendation by the Apostle Paul so that the church in Rome would receive her well. The same way we also see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, that Paul is writing a recommendation for Timothy to be received by the church in Philippi because they don't know him yet. In the same way, we also saw in the previous epistle, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter of recommendation again for Timothy so that he would be received by the church in Corinth. So there's, there's no problem with the apostle Paul having to obtain a letter of recommendation when it's needed, but in this case, it's not needed. They know him. They know his love. They know the many sacrifices that he's made. They know his labor of love. So instead, if you look back at our text again, verse 2, Paul says to the church in Corinth, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, if you have one of those Bibles that has the scripture references at the bottom and footnotes and things of that nature, you might see there's a footnote for this particular verse where some of the translations will read instead that 
uh, instead of saying our hearts, it says your hearts. I think that's probably a better reading. It's an alternate reading, if you will. In other words, that the believers in Corinth are themselves the letters of recommendation for Paul, that somehow they themselves are his recommendation, that it's on their hearts. Uh, Their hearts have been changed, have been transformed by his ministry in such a dramatic way that they are the proof of his calling as an apostle. If you've been in my office, uh, perhaps you've seen some of the degrees that I have framed up in my above up on the wall. And uh, to some extent, basically the purposes of those papers is to say I've jumped through all the hoops that I need to jump through in order to legitimately be called a teaching elder in the Church of Christ. But that's not what I rely upon when I determine whether or not I'm truly called by Christ to serve as your pastor. Now, in in my desk, I have a number of letters that I've kept over the years. And uh, some of those letters are uh, just a great blessing to me of how my ministry has blessed others. Reminds me of of what God has been able to accomplish through me. Uh, At the same time, I've also kept a number of letters of criticism as well. You'd be surprised pastors actually do that too. And I do that to remind me of the mistakes that I've made and to remind me of how to do my job better in the future when I have made some very bad blunders in that regard. But in both cases, they're just letters. That's all they are. They're still pieces of paper. They say one thing or another, but they remind me of some of the truths of of the gospel ministry. But I was greatly encouraged in this last trip when we were in Columbia. My wife and daughter got an opportunity to spend a good amount of time with the pastor's wife there. She, they have been in ministry for a little over a decade, I think. Um, but you know, she's mourning because um, they haven't been able to get pregnant. And, um, you know, she's been barren for a number of years. And they're actually serving in a church that um, has very few teenagers, very few uh, uh, young people that seem to seek the Lord. In fact, uh, she made a point of saying that most of the teenagers that are there, it doesn't seem like it's catching in that next generation, if you will. And um, the reason for that is one of the primary problems in the church uh, throughout Latin America, but particularly in Colombia, is that almost everyone who is a member of the church has come from a broken home. Uh, Almost every single family in that church came from parents that were divorced. They all had divorced. They all grew up. And it was a very messy divorce. And usually they don't know one of the other parents at all. And so that affects a church, does it not? You see that uh, no one really has a good model of how to do family, you know, in that sense. And so um, the pastor's wife got to spend, like I said, a good amount of time with my wife and my daughter. And, and she said that she was uh, sort of plying hope uh, with question after question to test the genuineness of her faith. And afterwards, she said something of this nature. She says, now I know that there is genuine fruit from your ministry. And I thought, wow. There's a letter of recommendation that that would far surpass any particular project or thing that I've attempted to do, but that to know that the Lord has worked uh, not just through my ministry, but in and through my family and my life to know that that Christ is indeed at work. Now, of course, it doesn't always work that way for every child, but in in this case, you could say hope is my letter of recommendation, Uh, that in many ways that... uh, not only do I believe it, but that, that, that gospel's taken hold in, in, the, in the home. It's a strange way the, the, the Apostle Paul explains this in verse 2. He says, the letter is written upon the hearts of the people rather than, say, upon their foreheads or upon their forearms, like in a tattoo sort of way. Uh, 
but rather it's written upon the hearts, which would be something you would think you couldn't see, right? Um, he says, but it's meant for everyone to see. Well, the reason for that is because if something takes hold of your heart, it affects everything else. It affects your speech, it affects your actions, it affects your thoughts. Every aspect is transforming. If, if, if God writes this letter of recommendation upon your heart, then you become a, a, a version of the gospel itself. When a person is, is uh, grasped by the gospel, that whole person's life becomes gospel-oriented and becomes a proof of the gospel itself. So in a sense, you could say that each one of us who have believed in Christ, we are living epistles in God's grand story. God has not finished telling the story yet, but each one of us is sort of a page in that story, proving that God is indeed at work in our midst. The, the final chapters, as I said, have not yet been written, but if you think about it, after the cross of Christ and until his return, we are the highlights of the story. You ever thought about it that way? You are one of the peaks in the story that God take, took you from here, the ruined life, the sinner, and made you into something that looks like Christ. It's a great story. It's a great part of the letter. And you are that demonstration of the gospel, the transformation through the gospel. And this makes sense. Uh, uh, that this is what's going on. Uh, Paul again reiterates in verse 3 that he doesn't take credit for this, just like I don't take credit for my daughter coming to faith in Christ. I didn't change her heart. I didn't do any of that nature. Uh, but he says, you know, this letter is, is written by Christ, not by me. Uh, in other words, he says, I'm only the deliverer of the letter. Christ himself is the one who writes the letter. Again, that has to be that way. If you think about the, the whole concept of a letter of recommendation, it only works if it's coming from a, a third party, right? If the Apostle Paul was writing the letter, he's writing a letter of recommendation for himself. Have you ever tried to do that? Or write a letter? I'm a pretty good person, and I've done really good, good work. No, nobody would do that. You get someone else to say those things about you. In this case, Christ is the one who's saying the good things about Christ's work through the people that have been transformed by his ministry. And so he's not taking credit at all. So in the same way, in verse 3, he says, This letter is not written with ink at all, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And it's interesting he uses the title. It's not a title that's often used in the New Testament, but Spirit of what? The living God. It's a very common title that's used of Jehovah in the Old Testament to contrast the true God from those false gods, those idols who have no power. They can do nothing. And, and Paul is using that language to show that how is the living God showing his powerful work today? He's showing it through his people. He's transforming them from the inside out, starting with the heart, and then working these things out to where they begin to sound like Christ, look like Christ, smell like Christ, as in the aroma of Christ. He says, as the Holy Spirit begins to convict a believer of his sin and of his need for Christ, it begins to change everything else, too. Now you begin to want the things of Christ's kingdom. You begin to want the things of Christ himself. And that changes everything. It's an entirely different life. Christianity can never be your hobby. It can never be a side gig, if you will. It's meant to totally take you over that you might know the, the, the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Of course, it's important to point out that the Apostle Paul is, is not saying in any way now that the Holy Spirit 
works in contrast to the printed words of Scripture. This is very important to point out, I think, in that sense. There are some charismatics today who would say that uh, the Word of God is dead. The book itself, is, it's a dead word. It's not a new and fresh and living word today, which would totally disagree with Hebrews saying it's a powerful living book that divides between soul and spirit. Paul's not distinguishing or contrasting between the work of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace in terms of the Word of God. Rather, he's saying that there's an evidence that can only take place in a heart that can't take place on paper. In fact, if you think about it, the Spirit of God only does His work through the Word of God. He illumines our minds to understand, to grasp God's Word so that we can gain the mind of Christ. He doesn't work contrary to the Word of God. He works through the Word of God. In fact, I would challenge you to see this. Whenever you ask the question, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I think a lot of people try to make it a very mysterious, esoteric thing, something that's just a feeling-based thing. But if you compare two texts in Scripture, in fact, I'll have you turn to these on your own, but I'll, I'll listen for you now so you can see it. Both of them describe two different things, seemingly, that have the exact same consequences. We have one passage that speaks of, of, of the of walking in the Spirit, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 of Ephesians. And then we have another passage that's written at the same time by the same author to a different church that's explaining the consequences of the exact same thing, but instead of calling it walking in the Spirit, what does he call it? Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, if you look at it, it's the exact same fruit, the exact same consequence. What is he saying? He's saying that if someone is walking in the Spirit and someone has the Word of God dwelling within them richly, the same consequence comes about. They begin to have a Word of God to share with all those that are around them. They want to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Their hearts are full of thanksgiving. They just want to do the things of God. Because when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they're also filled with the Word of God. It's not a antagonism. They're not working against each other. The Holy Spirit always works through the Word to bring us the mind of Christ, to bring us the life of Christ through the transformation of the gospel. But Paul's point here is that the evidence of the calling of his, uh, his apostleship is that the Word of God that he's preached has now been backed up with the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has used the preached Word to bring transformation in the life of his hearers. And that's why he doesn't need a piece of paper to prove his credentials because Christ has already proved his credentials through the power of the Spirit to, to take his, his, his preaching and, and use it in such a way. So that's why Paul says in verse 4, if you look there, he says uh, that he's confident in his calling toward God because his confidence resides not in himself but upon the Spirit of God to use his preaching, to use his ministry, to use his, his work to bring it about. Notice his confidence is not before men, but rather specifically he says his confidence is before God. In this case, the men don't think that he ought to be confident. He says, my confidence is before God because I know it's the Spirit of God who confirms my calling. But again, he's very careful not to claim any credit, on the other hand, that this great power that's at work within the church of Corinth does not come from him. He's merely an instrument through which the Spirit works, which is why, again, now look in verse 5. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. If you remember, he had asked the question in the previous chapter, who is sufficient to be the aroma of Christ? 
Who could possibly be the person that would draw people to Christ based upon the smell of the gospel? And the answer is no one. Not a single one of us is sufficient to do any of this. But God is sufficient to use us as his instruments to bring about these things. You remember when, uh, when Jesus first found Peter and James and John? Uh, do you remember what they were doing when he found them? They were just cleaning their nets after having fished all day, or at least you call it fishing. They didn't catch anything. Do you remember that? They had been doing it probably for about uh, six hours or so from, from morning until the afternoon. They caught nothing. Jesus comes over and asks them uh, to uh, let him get in one of their boats so he can teach the crowd. So he, he pushes out just a little bit into the water, begins to teach them. And after that teaching time is over with, if you remember, he then tells Peter, he said, well, why don't you put out the boat and do a little fishing? And Peter says, well, Jesus, um, you probably don't know much about fishing here, but uh, we've been doing this all day long. We've caught nothing. Don't, let's not waste our time in that regard. And, and, but nevertheless, because Jesus tells him to do it, he'll do it. So he goes out and he puts the, his boat into the water. And, and of course, you know, they, they push out maybe about 20 feet out into the water. Within a second, boom, net's just full of fish. I mean, to the point where the nets begin to break. And then afterwards, Peter calls James and John, has their boats come over and fills up all of their boats to where all the boats begin to sink. And of course, Peter says to Jesus, he says, I'm a, I'm a sinner, get away from me. Because <laughs> he realizes someone is here that is divine in his midst. But you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, you know, don't be afraid. He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men in the same way. What's his point there? Well, I think it's probably one of the most encouraging points that a pastor or any Christian could ever grasp. Simply this. It's not up to you to save anybody. It's not up to you to change anybody's heart. You can't bring salvation to a single person. You can't bring sanctification to a single believer. You can't do any of that. You are completely insufficient. But the beauty of the gospel is this. God knows where all the fish are. And God is the one who makes someone a good fisherman. And if you can rest in that, then you can have confidence in your evangelism. If you can rest in that, you can have confidence in your testimony as a Christian to know that God will give you those opportunities and will lead you to good fish. He will let you have a good fishing day from time to time. God will do this work in you, not because you're sufficient, but because he is. It's such an important point to grasp if we don't get it, then we're, we're constantly feeling like this burden is placed upon us. When I grew up uh, grow, going to church every Sunday, I remember the church that I was a part of. Every Sunday was like, you need to pray more, you need to witness more. That was sort of the, the, the same sermon every Sunday. Witness more, pray more, you need to do more. And you just feel like, well, I tried, and I really stick at this, you know. Uh, but the, the, the gospel says, don't just do more, but come to know the Lord of the gospel. When you come to know him and your heart is transformed by him, he gives you a power and authority you've never had before. And he gives you opportunities where you can just freely just share what's already in your heart. You don't have to make these things up. God will give you those opportunities. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's not done anything spectacular in and of himself, but God has just placed him before the right people at the right time, and he's used the gifts that God has given him, and as a result, people have become 
Christians. They've, 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 they've gotten saved. But it's God alone who does this. And that's, that's his emphasis, that God does this and then uses those people as the letters of recommendation to the world that there is a God who is working today. It's interesting. Um, I think it was last week. It was right, right around the time of Good Friday. I saw um, an article in uh, one of the online uh, uh, news outlets, and they showed a picture of um, three skyscrapers in New York City back in 1956. Did anybody here see that? It was a picture of uh, downtown New York and three, again, I don't remember which buildings they were, but prominent buildings in New York City. All of them, all three of them had lit up with crosses, 150-foot crosses. Can you imagine New York City? Three huge crosses on Good Friday. This is 1956. Anybody here who was around in the 50s get to see this? I was born in the 70s, but already by then the culture had changed. You would not see anything like that in New York City. Apparently, you can see it from time to time in Oklahoma City. That's a different kind of city, as you can imagine. But you would never see that in, in New York City today. You might see Christmas colors on some of the uh, high skyscrapers. You might see a heart for Valentine's Day and a whole bunch of other colors as well nowadays. But you won't see crosses and I remember reading about that, and my first inclination was like, man, that's so depressing. That is so sad. I mean, if you look at our culture today, and I mean, even just you know, since I've been alive, just how much it's changed, how much the culture has turned against Christianity and just hates Christ. And, and you begin to think, man, this is just a losing battle. It's only going to get worse. But I, w- I want to ask you this question. Was it ever God's plan? to use skyscrapers to promote his gospel? Is that how he converts people? Is it through billboards on the side of the road? No. He converts people through converted people. He presents the gospel through people who love the gospel. That's that's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be, regardless of our culture and how much it's changed. How many people do we have in the room this day? that he's still using as letters of recommendation that Christ has written. He will continue to use you and me to bring forth the power of God in this culture, in this day, in this generation, that people might know that there is a God who lives, who has risen from the dead, and who now is, 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 is working within us, transforming us day by day, not only to know Christ, but to be transformed into the image of Christ. This has been his plan all along, and he's still carrying it out. You are evidence of that today. I mean, I'd be a little discouraged if only one person showed up today. But that hasn't been the case. And it's not, the, it's not only here, but all throughout Michigan and all throughout the United States, and even in those cold places like Vermont and Connecticut, where I came from before I was here. It, you, you see a lot of people that are cutting their grass early Sunday morning. You don't see that many people going to church. But I can tell you, when you go to church, you see people who love Jesus. And they see it as a sweet refuge from the culture. They're excited to be there. They want to be there. And they're excited to share their testimony with you. That's how it is everywhere you go, all around the world. And it hasn't changed. So don't let the culture affect your understanding of what God is doing this day. You're here. He's doing it in you. 
may he do it more so in all of us each day. May we trust him to do that. May we rest in him alone for our salvation. And may may we rest in him alone to use us to bring others to faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. We're weak vessels. We, um, we vacillate a good amount in our faith. And there are times where we're full of doubt. There are times where we walk in disobedience. There are times in which we feel like there's no hope for us at all. But Lord, we, we know and we continue to rest in Christ alone for our salvation. To know that the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has won the victory. He has finished the work. And all we're doing, Lord, is, is, is putting that on display. Lord, help us to put it on display. Help us to be consistent in our testimony. Help us to continue to use the opportunities that you give us to share Christ with others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.